Jack Conzo is a globally touring keynote speaker and author of the book Break the Wheel. He has created several original podcast series, including Unthinkable and Exceptions, and he's the founder of Marketing Showrunners, a media company for creative marketers. He identifies himself as a creator, whether it's writing, podcasting, making videos, giving speeches, and now also writing books. In this podcast, Jay talks about the crucial skills we will be needing in the future, lists three steps to making better decisions, and explains how to translate his approach to everyday life. Welcome to another episode of Elementary Talks. With me is Matan. And Matan, I have a question. Yes, Ben. Why do we talk so much in this podcast about content marketing? Well, for one, we are our content marketing. It's, it's our job. It's our job, after all. But I think for so many users, elementary users, whether they are marketers or they have their own blog or agencies, I think they all try in 2019, almost 2020, they try to come up with some new content formats. They try to... Sometimes they wish they could you know, invent the wheel, audience. but it's really hard to come up with new ideas, even for us sometimes. You know, it's like, you know, how can we come up with the best podcast episode? How can we come up with the best uh, listicle and not basically that it would look different than, you know, our competitors? I think that's a big question. How do you do that? Well, luckily, we have one of the bigger influencers in the realm of content marketing today and someone who I truly appreciate and follow, Jay Akonzo. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Matan, I really appreciate it. So let's dive right in. Tell us a bit about what brought you to uh, you know, your whole journey and how you recently published your book, which is Break the Wheel, which uh, I read in a great book. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So Break the Wheel, uh, I wrote last year, and that was after three years of doing my own work for the first time, not working at a brand. So I started at Google and worked for HubSpot and then worked for a venture capital firm that invested in startups. And along the way, worked for a tiny little startup that no one's ever heard of. But all those different experiences were all in content marketing. And mostly because I like the content word in content marketing. I, <laughs> I sort of identify myself as a creator. I like to write And now I like to create a lot of podcasts and videos and speeches and now the book. So I've always been a creator and I've always had this little voice in the back of my mind saying that, you know, if, if everybody says that you should do a creative thing this specific way, you know, seven tips and tricks for whatever the task is, this little voice was always saying, you know, maybe that's actually not the right way to do it because if everyone else is doing it that way, that means it's going to, you're going to blend in or Even worse, you're going to miss out on some of the uniqueness that you bring to the work or that your team does or that your audience does or the knowledge you have about your audience, or maybe you're ignoring your specific resources. So there was always this little voice saying, the business world is obsessed with best practices. And maybe that's actually either a mistake or the exact opposite direction. So... I wrote this book basically to help people come up with a system to make better decisions when they're surrounded by too many best practices and too much advice. We're wired as, as humans to follow templates and best practices. And, and like, how do you break this mold? I think it all starts with, you know, the statement that I wrote into the book, everybody seems to agree with, but I don't think we have a system for acting on it. 
So the statement is finding best practices is not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. And everybody would agree, oh, of course, doing what works best for me, my team, my organization, my career, whatever, doing the best thing for my situation obviously is the better path than doing what others claim is best in some general sense. Everybody agrees with that. I think the problem is a lot of us came up through school or early career stops that we had, and we were taught that there's a correct answer for something. And that correct answer exists somewhere out there in the world. Somebody smarter than you or the documented history of your company, the conventional wisdom of a certain task or job or industry. And that must be smarter than whatever I can do on my own. And with all due respect to people that came before us, because I do think we should learn from them, I disagree. I think the most important thing we can start with is the us, right? That's what's missing, is our specific context. And I liken it to, actually, I'm, I'm a writer, but I liken this to a formula in the sciences or math. If you run a formula and you're missing key variables, or you're doing a study and you're missing key variables, you're running faulty equations. You're not going to get the best possible outcome. That's what it's like when we just follow a best practice or a trend, because the key variables that we miss come from our specific situation. So I'll give you an example. There's a coffee company that I profile in the book. They're called Death Wish Coffee, and they claim to have the strongest coffee in the world. And their message is basically, we all get one life. You should pursue your life with passion. Work hard, you know, stay nice, work hard, pursue your passion with everything you have. And their customers early on were truck drivers and entrepreneurs and construction workers, people that work really, really hard and believe that I'm going to give my all to everything that I, I do, no matter what I do. And so these people reached for coffee like it was an energy drink. They didn't really want a nice long cup of coffee where you sit down in a coffee shop and write your memoirs. They just wanted the jolt. They wanted the transaction. They wanted the outcome. Well, Death Wish could have ignored that and they would have created a type of coffee using a bean, very popular coffee bean called Arabica coffee. But what they did was they ignored probably the single most common rule of coffee, use Arabica beans. They ignored that and they used something that a lot of experts said don't use, which is called Robusta coffee. Robusta coffee is stronger and it has higher caffeine content when you roast it. All these things about the best practice said don't do it. But if you actually look at their specific situation, it makes a lot more sense that they would question the best practice. So that's an example of using a variable, using a detail from your own context to then make a better decision regardless of the best practice. I'm wondering to myself, is it something, this mindset of breaking the wheel and thinking outside of the box, is this mindset something that you yourself developed during your career? Or even when you just started your career, I know you were a sports writer and then communications and PR and ESPN, which means a sports ecosystem. Were you already back then thinking outside the box? Or was it during, you know, different stops at your career that made you think, okay, I need to change the way I work. I think I wish it was that early on because that was right before that was while I was still a student and I worked for ESPN. But when I graduated, my first full time job was at Google and my whole life I'd done 
what you were supposed to do. I got good grades. I showed up at class every day. I joined clubs and became the president of the clubs and joined teams and became the captain of the teams. Like I was trying to do what you're supposed to do to succeed this, this path, this idea that people have in their minds for what success looks like. And here I am getting this job at, at a company in 2008, which was basically the Mecca of tech, right? It's like, there's nowhere else you can go but Google in 2008 if you want to work for the best tech company with the best talent around you. Now, maybe that's changed a little bit since then, but that was it. That was the peak. And I was like, great, I made it. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. This is success. And, and, if, and I wasn't prepared for what happened next, which was I was incredibly unhappy. I was frustrated with the job. I did not like working for Google. I liked my teammates. I liked some of the perks. I did learn a thing or two. So I'm not, I don't regret working there, but this was supposed to be the dream job that I stayed in for 25 years. That was what I thought the path dictated for me. That's what you were supposed to do. That's the conventional wisdom. And I was super unhappy. And I left and I joined a little startup that nobody has ever heard of. They did not succeed. And yet that job was way more fulfilling, taught me way more and set me on a better path of doing content marketing and being a creator for a living uh, in a way that the job at Google never would have. So I'm looking back at this now, and I'm probably 25 at this point, And I'm thinking, why, why was I so unhappy? That's what you're supposed to do to succeed. And also, why are some of my friends at Google, they're at the job still, and they're, they're happy. And at first, I was like, how could you? To my friends, I was like, how could you work there? It's terrible. That job stinks. But actually, what I realize now is, it doesn't matter what you do in general. It, what, it matters that you find something specific to you in your life or you in your situation. And we were, we're almost never taught that. We're, we're never really told that in school. So, so that was like the crystallizing moment. I wouldn't say it's one moment. It probably happened over years. But that's when I first realized that actually the first step to making a good decision in anything we do is to look harder at, at three things. Yourself, the people you want to serve, and then your resources. And if you look at those three things and you ask really good questions and examine them, then you kind of set up a filter to make better decisions. And had I looked harder at those things in 2008, I probably would look at a company like Google and say, it's great for some people, but it's just not for me. Well, that's an interesting perspective because I think so many jobs, if you take from social workers to our own audience, you know, designers, marketers, they eventually have to do something similar, which is producing something themselves and communicate with an audience that is online. And this is a, a certain shift that I think needs some, some, uh, you know, some changes to be in, in the, the way people consider career and how they develop a career. It's much different than the situation that was, you know, 30 years ago. Oh, totally. And, and I think what, what you're speaking to is the amount of choice and the amount of control that people who are doing knowledge-based jobs have. And I'd argue that almost every job is knowledge-based today, but certainly the ones that will be left once technology starts to replace a lot of routine, repetitive jobs, that's even going to become more important. So the thing we're going to be left with, the, the skill we're going to need most is creativity. But even more so, if you don't get on board with the idea of creativity and I could talk, you, talk to you for another hour about why you should. But I think the thing that everybody should get on board with is that, you know, in a world of infinite information, the best skill we can develop is knowing how to vet it, right? Knowing how to vet possibilities and ideas, that is an incredibly hard skill to develop. That's what my book is really about. And it equips you to make better decisions 
faster, which is a skill I think we all want. And so, you know, for example, if you're trying to write a blog very simply, what tool should you use? Well, if you start Googling that, you're going to be overwhelmed right away because everybody is talking about their own tools or tools they've used, or everybody's writing a list of 101 tools available. You know, so if you want technology, if you want knowledge, if you want people to follow or learn from, uh, something to entertain you, something to eat, like it, we just have endless choice and options today. And that can be really paralyzing and really overwhelming. And so the shortcut for making a decision is the best practice. But all a best practice is, is a possibility that was vetted by somebody else. And I think it's far better if we got good at vetting possibilities ourselves. Yeah. I mean, this is 100% compatible with the fact that your own podcast that I followed back in the day, the, the one you did with Drift, it was totally curated, meaning it wasn't just a, a, a normal interview. It was you did the interview, then you slice it up, you added your own narration. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah. So actually, that was my, the, I believe what you're referring to is exceptions, correct? Exceptions, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I was approached by the tech company Drift, and they asked if I would do an original series for them, which is what I did for a living for three years. I was either making money by speaking, public speaking, or I would make money by hosting and producing podcasts and video documentaries for brands. And I've, I've since switched to teaching that. So I now run an organization called Marketing Showrunners. And we are a media company that teaches brands how to make great shows. Um, but it started with me making those shows. And I still do a little bit today. But Exceptions was this chance to kind of go on a journey to understand something that Drift wanted to know and wanted to support in the world and that I really cared about, which is the increasing number of B2B companies that care a lot about brand and customer experience. And so we called the series Exceptions because we were going to profile some of the early movers in that space over the last 10 years because they are kind of the exceptions. They're kind of the outliers, but quickly that's no longer the case. So the message of this journey was we're going to go and figure out how they bet on brand and why, what's making them so special today. Why are they thriving based on brand? And we also want to tell you, the listener, you should care about this too. So yes, the name of the show was Exceptions. We did 20 episodes. It's like this nice contained series we did. But at the end of it all, we tried to rally people to say, you should go become an exception in your industry too. Uh, and, and to your point, Ben, we would do some pretty heavy post-production. So I would go and do uh, usually two interviews, sometimes three. I think like the ideal episode, we talked to a customer which is so rare, I think, for a, a company's podcast. Usually you talk to people at other companies, but we're talking about brand experience, so we want to talk to the customer on the receiving end. So we'd start by talking to a customer of a company. Then we talk to an executive at that company and then somebody who was on the team. Uh, and so you have three different perspectives on the brand. And then we would segment the show so that every single episode had the same structure to it, the same chapters, and the listener could get familiar with that flow. And every time we would make like subtle tweaks to keep it refreshing. So that was the approach. It's like, what do we do? First, the concept. Let's explore something meaningful. Second, the format. Let's divide up the actual content within an episode to make it interesting and, and enjoyable and entertaining. And then third was, well, okay, who should, 
host this show? Uh, me. Okay, who, what brands should appear on this show? We came up with a big list and we ended up with 20. So we kind of made those decisions in that order, concept, format, and then talent. You created your own uh, template for something uh, unique. I think that uh, a lot of, uh, I, I assume that a lot of our audience uh, look at those amazing stories of, about products and about uh, companies like, like the one you mentioned, the, the coffee brand. And they, they, they say, okay, but I'm just a freelancer. I just build websites. How does this translate to the normal average business uh, that doesn't do any exceptional, you know, uh, out of the ordinary product? Or doesn't have a budget to do that. Exactly. So, and in the book, you give a great example, I think, of this sort of gray type of business. And I'm talking about the Merriam-Webster example. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. So Merriam-Webster, uh, they sell a dictionary and every other dictionary looks exactly like their dictionary. They have almost no marketing budget. They have a very, very small team internally. And for years and years early on in digital marketing, they were incredibly boring. I mean, it felt like a dictionary gathering dust on a shelf. It was so boring. They would do the same stuff every day on Twitter. They'd post, I think in the morning, they would do a word of the day. And then at night, they would post a quiz. And they hired a new chief digital officer, a woman named Lisa Schneider. She's incredible at what she does. And she looked at the boring marketing, the boring content they were putting out. And then she looked at her team. And her team was anything but boring. They were incredibly funny, um, very warm people, very smart people, um, and very clever. They would share all kinds of you know, jokes with each other internally on Slack, and they, they had to keep up with pop culture. In fact, I don't think a lot of people know this, but the editor of a dictionary is a job called a lexicographer. And lexicographers, they, they don't, Lisa told me this, I didn't realize this, but Lisa told me lexicographers do not create rules for language or rules for defining words. What they do is they chart popular use of words and as more and more people begin to use a word, it becomes a word in the dictionary. And that's why there's certain slang words or, you know, what starts out as an incorrect use of that word becomes the definition. So what a lexicographer is supposed to be really good at doing is tracking and being part of pop culture. Yeah. It, it, yes. People don't realize that because they think of a dictionary as stuffy or that maybe rule like maybe like a, like a teacher of yours that sets the rules and they're rigid. No, they have to be fluent. They have to be modern. So that's the job. Their team was also that way naturally. They were witty and wonderful people, but externally they were very boring. And so what she did was very simply say to the team, not let's grow our followers on Twitter, not let's have an editorial strategy meeting. What she said to them was, let's show the world how fun and relevant we are. And immediately that type of goal which I have a name for, I'll, I'll reveal it in a second, but that type of goal setting with your team, it focuses you on the behavior change that your people need to achieve something great. Not a number, not an outcome, not something you measure. The actual goal was, let's show the world how fun and relevant we are. Now, maybe a measure of the goal is follower growth or traffic to the blog those are measures of the goal. They're not the goal themselves. The goal itself was showing the world how fun and relevant they are. Okay, so let's not call that a goal. Let's call that an aspirational anchor. It's this aspirational statement for you and or your team that, that forces you to insert who you are into the work. 
you imbue everything you do with who you are as a person. And whether you're a freelancer with no budget and no name or a giant brand, what ends up happening is that forces you to differentiate because you don't exist in any other scenario. So just by you bringing your full self to the work and finding ways to do so, you will be different in a way that some other people deeply love. And so that's the power of an aspirational anchor. It basically combines two different things about your unique situation. Some kind of intent that you have for the future. So for like Lisa and her team, it was, let's be part of the conversation. And then some kind of hunger that you have. So a, some dissatisfaction with your current status quo. That could be about your industry. It could be about you and your team and your behavior. So for Lisa, the hunger was, our voice is too bland. We're too boring and predictable in our digital marketing. So the outcome of that combination, let's be part of the conversation, but we're too boring. So let's show the world how fun and relevant we are. And today, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary is one of the most beloved brands on social media. They're hysterical. They're viral. People can't get enough of their, they're a dictionary, right? Nobody can ever say, oh, my business is too boring or I don't have the budget because they don't have a marketing budget and they're a dictionary. It, there's no, they're a collection of words that is the same exact collection as every competitor. Nothing seems more boring than that, yet they've found a way to differentiate and it comes back to the people. They're huge in social, right? They, they post uh, like strange words and uh, interactive uh, questions to the audience. Yeah, they, they do something called emoji threads where they basically take similar sounding words and they use an emoji to describe how they're each different. So when you say all three words, it sounds exactly the same. Like there's three different versions of the word peak. There's like P-E-A-K, P-E-E-K, P-I-Q-U-E. And they would put a little emoji next to each and define it. So like that's a little bit of personality. Um, but they would do bigger things too. Like they they came out a couple of years ago and they declared that the hot dog is a sandwich. They said, here's the definition of a sandwich. This is what a hot dog is. So we're declaring today the hot dog is a sandwich. And like people lost their minds, especially in America. It's like that's such a you know part of the holidays that we have here. Several holidays, very big. You go outside, you cook and grill and hot dogs are a big part of that. Playing baseball, for example. So so people have passionate opinions on hot dogs. It's a conversation dogs. piece. Yes, it's, it's almost a conversation like a provoke piece. to provoke yeah. the, the people. Light trolling is uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. It's allowed. Right, like, yes, yes. It's exactly the right way to say it. So they got into the conversation by having a point of view and by using who they are as people. And so back to the initial question here. If you're a freelancer, I mean, I was a freelancer alone working solo for three straight years and only recently they start building a team around me. If you have a point of view on the work and you insert who you are, in other words, you're using your personality and your perspective and, and everything that makes you you, you'll be different. Some people won't want that, but, a lot, but some people will really want that. And that lets you find better clients and charge more. I mean, that's how freelancers grow. It's not by doing more work for more clients. It's by finding better clients and charging more. And so I can think of no better scenario than exactly what we're talking about, which is if you're a freelancer, how can this stuff in the book be relevant? It's because you're the exact use case for the aspirational anchor. That's interesting. I, I could actually think about, you know, the options to grow from this, but some people would think some users, some, uh, you know, freelancers or business owners would think, okay, I may not want to provoke some people who could, who are actually a potential 
potential uh, customers, potential clients. So is it that like, uh, um, you know, a sensitive area, a sensitive issue when you don't know how much you can express of yourself? I think we've been taught that. I, I think we believe that what people want is here is exactly the project that I need to get done. Every single detail is ironed out. So I'm going to go find a freelancer who is good to work, work with. They're nice. They're enjoyable to work with and talk to. And they have time that I don't have. But now if that's really how you think your business should run as a freelancer, you are one of millions of people that do what you do. If you design websites, if you write blog posts, if you're a marketing consultant, and you name it. If you're, you're a software engineer, my dad is a software engineering uh, consultant. So he started as a VP of software engineering and now he's out on his own. And, and if all people wanted when they worked with my father was somebody who knows code and can develop B2B products because that's his specialty. He's the same as everybody else. Why would they choose him? Well, it's because he has a point of view on his work. It's because he has opinions. It's because he understands who he is. He's very good at the business side. He's a very good communicator. He uses things that are his advantage over his competition. And so I don't think we have to It's like, you know, if you go on a date with somebody, that person's not going to learn every single trait about you all at once. But over time, the more they get to know you, the more they get to know those traits and appreciate them. That's what it is. You know, so here, here's an example. I, my organization still does some pretty, I think we're very choosy about this, but we still consult brands about making podcasts and video shows. So yes, we publish a lot of content. That's our business model, but we still do some consulting. It looks very similar to when I was just a freelancer doing this stuff. So the first thing we built on our page, if you go to marketingshowrunners.com and click consulting, you'll see that there's a message from me and the headline is, we're not a fit for everyone. And I basically give you a letter directly written by me about who we are for and who we're not for. And so that's what I mean when you, it's about using who you are. It's like who you best suited to work with. What kinds of people, not just the industry sector, but the belief system that you have, the approach to the work. You know, we don't, we don't do well with brands that have an exact idea for their podcasts. We're really good at working with you from ground zero and developing the concept. Okay, we put that on the website. But more important than that is our belief system. We believe that podcasts are actually really, really bad to grow a new audience. They're not about reach. They're not about total downloads. We believe they're about engagement. They're about resonance, not reach. They're about keeping people around and turning a passive audience into passionate fans. That's our belief system. So it behooves us to put that as loudly as we can on our consulting materials so that we only end up working with people that we're a good fit for. Because otherwise, we're going to be unhappy. We're going to feel like we're getting squeezed on the cost. We're going to do work that's not good for the client. And the audience that the client serves isn't going to win either. So I, that's what I mean when it's like, use your personality. Mm -hmm. that, that means that clients, for example, that are really data-driven, it's something that you're less encouraged to work with? No, it's, 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 uh, we, we, work, we are less inclined to work, not with clients that are data-driven, but clients that are download-obsessed. Mm -hmm. If all you care about is the download, we're not going to work with you. So what we do is we'll help you understand what else can I measure What other data should I look at? And also, how do I tie the podcast to revenue, not just the download? Because the download might be what uh, a media company wants because they use the download total to attract advertisers. 
But when we work with a brand, they sell products. So they're not selling advertising space. They have to sell a product. So it's a little bit more nuanced than just looking at downloads. So I'd say we, we love working with data-driven podcasters and marketers because they look hard at the quality of their show. It's just that we have to move them away from downloads as the only data. Mm -hmm. This brings us back to freelancers and possibly large and small audience because today, if you have a small audience, if you're just building websites and you've never thought you need an audience, getting that audience can be huge, even if it's a small 100, 1,000 people that are really big fans, uh, getting the audience through uh, you know, the content that you create is something that can be really influential. And for that, you do need a certain differentiator. I mean, we recently did a, a case study of a client, a client of ours who recreated their entire website for the Taylor Swift uh, album launch. And that might be sound, it sounds a bit strange, but I, it's those kind of things when you, you're used to making exceptional projects, I think that kind of grows uh, your audience. You, would you agree? Yeah, I, I like what you led with there. The first thing you said was even if it's a uh, hundred people or a thousand people, you know, I think we, we see people who have big followings or lots and lots of, I don't know, uh, fame. And we think that that's what it takes. But that's so not true. Number one, a lot of those followers are fake. Let's just acknowledge that. And number two is, you know, okay, rather than just advise this, I'll actually reveal what I'm dealing with. So my podcast is called Unthinkable. Our, my website is marketingshowrunners.com. Those two assets get very little downloads and very little traffic. I think our, our most popular blog post ever is something like 1,500 views. And the most popular download or the average download total for 30 days for one episode is about 1,900 downloads, 2,000, something like that. Now, that's big for some people, don't get me wrong, but I've been doing those things for four or five years. And I can support a team of three. I get invitations for paid public speaking. I was able to write a book. Like, I wish I could, I, I don't want to do this, but you know, I, I could just go on the road and my whole spiel could be like, look at how few people know my work, but because they're the right people, I can build a freelancing business that turns into an entrepreneurial business with a team. Like that, I, that's too full of myself. Like that's too egocentric for me to want to do. But I just want people to understand that it does not take much to support your business. It takes a few of the right people. You don't need a ton of people. So if you have a point of view or you want to develop your point of view and get to know it yourself, publish content, write your thoughts out, put it out into the world, create a podcast. The more you do this, the more it becomes that, that filter that others have when they decide if they're going to work with you or not. So it, it just does wonders. I, I like, it's, it's so hard to describe, but if you have a, a regular creative practice and put content out regularly over the next three years, you will be amazed at what it looks like for you three years down the road compared to today. Like you of today would look at the you in three years and be like, oh my gosh, I, I would love to be that. It's it oh, just, yeah. it's amazing. And, and what you say is you have to have a balance between what brings you income right now and what is a long-term investment. And maybe the, the, the road show going on the road and doing keynote speaking is profitable right now, but really having that time allocated towards creating content, that's a must if you're thinking about growing your business and the long-term. There is a near-term 
focus that you have to have. It's not, you can't just focus on three years down the road. I totally get that. And that's why side projects are so valuable. You know, if you look at the story of my career, it's, it's about side projects. You, you'll find some things on LinkedIn that I publish publicly. That's all the jobs I've had. But what you don't see are, I actually did count this. Over the last 10 years, I have launched 33 side projects. And some of them died within a month. And some of them actually can, are continuing on for multiple years until today. But it's like going to the gym. It's like your creative gym. You get stronger. You work on supporting skills and supporting muscles. And so if you have clients you have to serve right now and you just need the money, I totally get it. I've been there. I, I had a, a, a day last summer where I thought I would give up this work. I lost two clients in the same day. One I fired because they weren't paying me on time. And then the other, they were going to raise venture capital and did not. So they didn't have the funds to pay me anymore. That happened on the same day. And I actually remember that the day after that, my podcast producer took a full-time job. So she didn't want to freelance anymore. So I lost her too. So I was like, I was ready to go get a job again as a freelancer. And, uh, but thank God I had, you know, pockets of time over the previous two years blogging about podcasting because I could send those articles to people. I had a little audience over email that I could say, Hey, I have some new bandwidth and I could take on new clients. And I was able to get back on my feet pretty quickly um, because of a side project, because I was writing my thoughts all the time, you know, an hour or two here and there for a couple of years. That's inspiring. Yes. I think our listeners could get some uh, from this podcast episode, they could get some insights. Actionable insights. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we're about to wrap it up this uh, episode, but I'd like first to ask you, as, as you mentioned, you used to be a content consultant and you had your own uh, uh, different uh, agencies, Boston Content, and you worked as a head of content of HubSpot. But in the recent years, four years, you've been giving speeches. And can you tell us a bit about the speeches that uh, are uh, scheduled for 2020? So uh, 2020 is incredibly blurry right now, but I don't think I would have it any other way. I just, I, if everything was planned out for me too far in advance, I would hate it. So uh, there's a couple things in the works. So one is, you know, the, the speaking, the way speaking works, it's, it's kind of an unspoken business. It's really weird. Um, but the more I get into it, the more I'm fascinated by the mechanics. So I do about one to two speeches a month. And that's actually down from where I started. I started, I did about two to three speeches, but I just, I have a, a daughter now. I just don't want to be on the road that much. So I'm very lucky that I could make that, that choice because a lot of speakers are trying to do the opposite. They're trying to get more speeches. If that's the case, the thing I'd advise is treat it like a software product without a sales team. A software product without a sales team has to rely on delivering such a good product that yields referrals, right? It's, 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 they call it like humanless or touchless sales. Your product is your speech, your idea, the content that you present. And that has to be good enough that people in the room want to hire you for the next speech. So you have to create this little flywheel. It's actually not about like fame and that, that sure that can help. That's one element of it in the vetting process, but actually you can be completely unknown online. And I do know some speakers that are this way and have a thriving speaking business because you take one small opportunity for free or several, and you turn those into more speeches. Yeah, so that's, that's something people don't talk enough about. They think it's like, I have to write a famous book and then I go speak. So my next year is, a ba is basically continuing to create that flywheel. So continuing to give good speeches once or twice a month so I can keep speaking. It's like, it's like how stand-ups work. I mean, they, they go on the road and then they collect uh, the material, new material. 
I'm so glad you said that because I, I spent a lot of time studying stand-up comedy, not because I'm trying to improve as a speaker, although I guess that's part of it. I just, I'm fascinated. That could be another side job, you know. Just <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, I, I tried stand-up comedy once in college. I was terrible. That was before I did any public speaking, though. So maybe I should, maybe I should try it again. Your show is pretty funny. I have to say. <laughs> Thank that. you. I'm glad to hear that. It's a lot of it's a lot of terrible like dad jokes. So exactly, <laughs> we love dad jokes. We yeah, have some yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the other thing I would say is, you know, what we've spent time doing when I'm not traveling is building marketing showrunners into a media company, into a place that covers and advances this movement of marketers making shows. And to do that, we spent all November talking about how to get buy-in to do a podcast or a video show how to budget for it, how to plan for it, how to basically all the planning stuff. But now the problem is going to become, how do you create a show people want to listen to or watch? And so we're shifting gears so that early next year, that's where we're going to focus next. So we're launching a podcast to deconstruct popular podcasts. Very, like very meta level kind of content, a podcast about podcasts. But so that's coming. We're going to do a whole month about the creative process when you craft a show differentiation in the market, how to be a better host, talent, producer, that kind of stuff. So uh, the, the way Sign we work, it, yeah, uh, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, the, the way we work is every other month, we're in planning mode for the next month. So every other month, we do something special and big. And then we kind of go in a hole and plan a little bit. And, you know, we're publishing content all the time, but we want to have like themed big projects every other month. So that, that's like my, my 2020 cadence. Cool. Jay, how can people reach you? It's very obvious to people by now is that I like to talk. So I'm, I'm all <laughs> over the internet. Very easy to find. But I think the best place to go is right now, all of my creative power is going to marketingshowrunners.com. Like that's, that's sort of like, that's my baby right now. That's where I'm really focusing all my creativity. Cool, Jay. Uh, I have a problem talking to you because it's hard to write down all the, uh, take, the you know, the takeaways and... Uh actionable uh, points that I have to, to, to follow through. Just have to listen, you know, to the podcast. <laughs> Definitely, in, in slow motion. Yeah. So thanks a lot for uh, being on the show and uh, hopefully we'll get you back and we'll do more things together. Yeah, we learned a lot today. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so much.